0: One of the things that makes On Being a little different is that we release the unedited version of my entire conversation every week. We do this for transparency, but also so you can be with us from the very beginning of the production process if you'd like. You can hear everything from what my guests had for breakfast to the small chat between questions to the gems that we just can't fit into the produced episode. Listen to my unedited interviews wherever you download your podcasts or at Being.
1: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's
0: Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Imam Abdullah Antepli and Rabbi Sarah Bassin, recorded at the Union for Reform Judaism's General Assembly in Boston. Listen to our produced show with them wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at onbeing.org. Oh, okay. Chris just said we're rolling. So, um, Welcome. Thank you so much for coming. I know you're all part of this huge event. And I can imagine, I know at this time of the day when I'm at something like this, my brain is kind of dead. So hopefully we will, we will be stimulating and inspiring up here. Um, I'm so honored to be here. We were so honored by this invitation. And I want to thank Rabbi Aaron here at Mannheimer, who I've been correspond, you know, talking to for years. And I haven't seen you for a few years. I I wasn't sure if that was you. So thank you. So here we are again. Yeah. And um, I don't think we're we're taping this for later broadcast, hopefully. Um, But it's very, you know, informal. Here we are together. And I don't think, is there anything else? If you have a cell phone on, please turn it off. That's it. (coughs) Um, this is, you know, we get to have a 75 to 90 minute conversation, and it will be a real conversation. It may not be completely linear, and if someone's cell phone rings, we will pick up again. Um, so let's just, anything else, Lily? No, let's just dive in. Um, the tensions and dangers of our time are well known. I'm also interested Passionately interested in the story, the stories of our time that are hard and true and proceeding with grace and creativity. Stories that are not being told because they are not violent and not shouting to be heard. One of the stories of our young century is that all over this country, synagogues and mosques, Muslims and Jews have been coming to know one another. There, are, there is friendship, there's shared community initiatives that didn't exist before. There are Jews and Muslims having each other's backs in times of crisis, both locally and globally. And there are programs and initiatives all over this country and across the world, a fair number of which these two have touched, um, that are patiently and at human scale planting the seeds for new realities across generational time. And in my mind, generational time, unlike real time, which we talk about all the time in the news cycle, generational time is faithful theological time. Um, It is a faithful theological sense of time and of the possibilities it is ours to create, even in the darkest moments. And as I say, my two guests today are part of that story. Um, And they have more activities and credentials to their names than I could list here, and you can find them probably in the program and online. Um, But just let me, you know, Rabbi Sarah Bassin serves Temple Emmanuel in Beverly Hills, and she was the first executive director of New Ground in Los Angeles. Imam Abdullah Antepli is the first Muslim chaplain at Duke University, and has also been the co-creator and co-leader of uh, the Shalom Hartman Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative. And I was, was, uh, in preparing for this, I saw Rabbi Sachs, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, calling you a one-man irresistible force for good. (laughs) It's a good recommendation. Because I'm a blue
2: devil imam. (laughs) So, Duke University's mascot is Blue Devil. <laughs>
0: um, so I'd like to start um, where I always start my conversations by hearing um, just a little bit about this. How would you would begin to talk about the spiritual, religious background of your childhood? Rabbi Bassin? would you like to start?
1: Yeah, my, um, my spiritual journey as a child actually began in utero because my mom actually became a Jew by choice when she was eight and a half months pregnant with me. Um, so she immersed in the mikvah while uh, while I was still inside of her. Um, but the Catholic background that she had and, and my exposure to her half of the family, even as I was raised solely as a Jew, was so deeply important for how I understood my spiritual upbringing as a kid. And I got this deep and profound language of justice in the reform movement, that really stuck with me about giving me a sense of purpose and rootedness, and um, that my faith was to be a faith put into action. Mm. But the most lived experience that I had of that was actually through stories from my mom's side of the family. And uh, that
0: Catholic social that Catholic, justice tradition. That Catholic social justice
1: no. tradition. My my grandfather, who died before I, I was born, I never met him, um, he was a small town physician. and he would be the type of doctor that accepted pickles for payments. And all of the stray animals that people had would get dropped on um, the doorstep of that family. And I grew up with these stories about you know, how they went to integrate the, the pool on the first day, that it was, on racially, that it was racially integrated. And um, that was my sense of what faith looked like in action. So I had this kind of interesting fusion of a reform language that was juxtaposed with this Catholic reality um, that informed who I was, and, and for me, that always meant that inner faithness was a real asset um, to how I understood myself Jewishly.
0: Hmm. And also you were in Kansas. You, you were born and raised in Kansas, Yeah correct? I grew up out yeah. uh, outside of Kansas too. City. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you're now. In Los Angeles, and that's also a different
1: world. You straddle worlds in that sense as well. I do. I um, mm-hmm. I started off in the Midwest, and when I was 18, I went to school on the East Coast, and then to uh, to Jerusalem for a year, and then to Los Angeles. So yeah. haven't been back to the Midwest for any significant period of time, but it's very much in, in my blood. Yeah. Um,
0: uh, so, Imam Antepli, Mta- you, you, you were born in Turkey and, and it was a different turkey. It was a secular turkey right um, How would you talk about uh, the spiritual or religious background of your childhood?
2: Um, mine is a little bit more <laughs> eventful and problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in a Turkey, especially my family background. It was violently secular. In uh, many people in the United States, they cannot understand if. Becoming secular means you have to be hostile towards religion. But briefly, Turks learned secularism from their French teachers, uh, where secularism also means you have to reject the public expression of religion, pretty much like you have to treat religion like a herpes. You know it's not going to go anywhere, but you have to suffocate enough to the four walls of the mosque that it will never go away. Uh, my, my father, My father hated religion in general, Islam in particular, so much that he named all his children uh, after pre-Islamic Turkish gods, yeah. um, so Abdullah is the name in Hebrew of the servant and slave of God. Is something that I took on when I became religious, and I'm not unique in my generation. What was
0: your name? What was your given name?
2: <laughs> Tunjay, which mm-hmm. means full red moon, which uh, shaman Turks used to worship. Uh, so interesting. Can you imagine your father naming you like Krishna, or um, <laughs> or your father naming you Amalek? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so when I, became, when I became very religious in my mid teenage years, Islam in many ways uh, came and filled the kind of empty space that I always felt in my heart. That, that legal ritualistic tradition forces you to slow down five times a day, remember God, focus internally, encourages you to grow internally as much as externally, it just spoke to me so beautifully. But theologically, many Jews who will understand me here, I couldn't keep the same name. Uh, I cannot be named after another deity. It will be in direct violation of the monotheism as Islam preaches. Uh, So I took the name Abdullah, and I didn't have a language to, like why did I choose this particular name of many? Uh, I now have a language to sort of discuss and uh, explain. What attracted me to God and religion in the first place, one of the most consistent central emphasis in Islam is God is not an intellectual game. It's not a vertical relationship. You cannot experience the presence of God in your life only with your relationship with God. If you claim to love God, it has to manifest itself in the horizontal service of humanity. You have to make a difference in the life of others. You have to show that love means something other than necklace and bumper sticker. You, you, you do something with it, that you have to manifest that love of God to love of humanity. And Abdullah, I felt it was just capturing that, a mm-hmm. servant yeah. of God, slave of God. And uh, I hope I'm living up to that name.
0: And and you have also stated very clearly that you, you grew up very, I think mean, you a very, very anti-Semitic, yes. and that it was, in fact, um, studying mainstream Islamic theology, which yes. you set out to do on your own, young, um, that led you to to put all those caricatures aside and kind of begin anew.
2: Yes, and I'm grateful to Almighty God. I am really grateful that God of mercy and compassion didn't allow me to live with that kind of poison in myself. Uh, I don't know if you were able to see some of my uh, explanation. I still consider myself as a recovering (laughs) anti-Semite because hate came and corrupted my soul so early. The first book I read about Jews and Judaism was the Children's Version of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion at the age of 12, Children's Version. At an age when I was opening my eyes to the world and wondering why everything about Islam and Muslims are wrong, why the Muslim civilization is in a perpetual misery, how, as an Ottoman nationalist, we lost this huge empire, stuck in a small place and still not able to recover, why so many ills of the Muslim world is just constantly pulling us down. And here is a hate giving you a very simple answer, very black and white, simplistic answer. It's because of this evil irredeemable evil religion, and irredeemably evil uh, members of that religion. The second book was Henry Ford's International Jew. And uh, of course, immediately after that, I read Mein Kampf. Mm. And, and before the age of 15, I was sufficiently antisemitic. Uh, I spent a number of my teenage mm. years burning uh, as many Israeli flags in the protest as I can. Good for Chinese economy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> All of these Israeli flags, cheap plastic, we used to buy them in boxes. It's, it's unbelievable who I was and what I was and what I do yeah. now. Um, <laughs> and my, quite honestly, like, that tells you the level of poison I, I, I uh, swallowed. When I read Mein Kampf, it made so much sense to me that mm. uh, my reaction to Mein Kampf was not denying Holocaust, but glorifying Holocaust, saying this guy had a point. Uh, I hope somebody will finish the job, unfortunately. And that type of anti-Semitism is on the rise, both in the West as well as in the East, which is quite despicable. But yes, what saved me is, I was coming from a very secular background. My family didn't know anything about religion. They hated religion altogether. I went to madrasa. I went to become a, I didn't want to be an imam. I still don't comfortable with that imam being just your profession. But that was the only way I can learn Islam in its depth. I can understand Quran for myself. I can understand and go really deep in my understanding of my religion. And then when I exposed myself to mainstream Islamic theology, and when I studied Islamic uh, Muslim history of Jewish-Muslim relations, I couldn't reconcile. I just couldn't reconcile the amount of hate and poison that I have swallowed. And that that saved me. Mm. And since then, I've been trying to drive in the opposite direction as fast as I can. Right. But again, <laughs> yeah. it's a lifelong journey.
0: Mm. So, um, so there's a definition of ecumen. You know, ecumenism is the is intra Christian uh, relationship conversation. Which in you know, I was born in 1960, and it's hard to remember how you know 1960, where I grew up, um, a mixed marriage was a, a Methodist Baptist marriage, right? I mean, we we forget that we have come a long way in many ways, as hard as things are. Um, and my favorite definition of ecumenism was from this great Paulist priest who actually was um, Pope John the XXIII's liaison to non-Catholic observers to Vatican II. And his definition of ecumenism was, ecumenism is that which we would have more of if we had a better word for. No, ecumenism is that which if we had a better word for, we would have more of. Um, and I've been really aware of this for many years, and I so so I'm, I'm saying that by way of saying so. Even the phrase interfaith relations or Muslim-Jewish dialogue, we need these words. We can't get rid of them, but they they're so clinical. And I think that so I'm so I'm just saying that by way of saying as we continue to speak, I'm going to try to avoid them. And because I think these okay. words don't c- convey the beauty, the depth. And the the transformation that happens um, in these experiences, and that it's really important that those of us involved in these, you know, use a great ecosystem of words and stories um, to talk about what Mm -hmm. happens to us.
2: If I may, one of those words is Abrahamic. Mm -hmm. I just hate that term, Mm -hmm. but I don't know. I don't have a better one. Right, Uh, Abrahamic family, Abraham, Jews and Muslims, spiritual cousins. You know, every time anybody says Abrahamic family. I wonder if these Hindus and Buddhists, they look at us and say, what a dysfunctional family. <laughs> 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 like, what is right. family? <laughs> right. And, and putting Abraham, the old guy, in the center, again, glorifying men, as if none of yeah. the women in this story makes any,
0: yeah.
2: any meaningful contribution. That's a
0: good, it's a good example. Yeah, and, we should find and it some is, new terms. It is meaningful, but it has limits. All yes. these, these, these phrases are meaningful, Absolutely. they have limits. Yeah, I just... Um, I guess so. The, the question I want to ask, coming out of that, is if I if I said, you know, how would you start to convey? Because I think one of a paradox of meaningful relationship across these boundaries is that it's not just that you come to know the other, but that you the ground on which you in which you are planted is richer. Um, but, but it, it's not logical um, if you haven't had the experience. I just wonder, how would you start to, to convey that, what this does to you and to your identity and your own tradition?
1: The language that I've used to describe that is, yeah. is a feeling of holy envy. That holy, holy, holy envy. Holy envy, hmm. right? That, um, and I say that there are a lot of things that each religious group does particularly well. And I think that often when people encounter the Jewish community, one of the things they really admire is our diversity of opinion and our way to argue and how rich and how alive that conversation is. Um, But we're also not that good at talking about God. And we also don't have woven into our fabric on anything other than an annual basis what actual forgiveness looks like. You mean in Jewish... In Jewish Jewish theology and Jewish practice. right? So when I look at Christians... And see how they internalize that language of forgiveness, right? And have this model in Jesus of what that looks like. I want, I want to know what that is in my language, right? And and also when I look at Muslims and see the way that this language of God just flows through you, right, without any sort of self-conscious awareness, I want that. I'm envious of that, and it's it's not an envy. Um, that does anything detrimental to me, right? It's an envy that actually makes me want to dig for it in my own tradition.
0: Right, there's, this, there's a Rosh Hashanah reflection or sermon from you on, on this the, the, um, the way Jews speak of our Father, our King. Mm. Um, here's what you wrote, it's beautiful. So why do we conjure up both notions of God in one breath? Um, and you say, I believe that this prayer is trying to teach us an essential life skill, that of holding two contradictory ideas in our heads simultaneously without rejecting either.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's complicated, right, yeah. that um, interfaith relations, for all the limitations of, of that term, that it's simultaneously enriching and deeply challenging and, and frustrating. Um, you know, I walk away from conversations feeling fulfilled and transformed, but I also walk away feeling really agitated sometimes mm-hmm. um, because the other person doesn't understand where I'm coming from or how can they not get how important this particular concept is, is to me? Um, that both things are true at the same time. Mm-hmm.
2: That's really beautiful. Um, holy envy is a term coined by uh, Christopher Stendhal, the late uh, ah. bishop and I think should be a measure of success for any cross-faith, cross-religious, and cross-cultural conversation. To me, the measure of success should be any cross-religious, cross-faith, cross-cultural conversation should inevitably develop appreciation, knowledge of the other, but simultaneously should make you grow more deeply rooted in your own faith tradition. Mm -hmm. And it happened to me many times in my studies of Christianity and in my avid, very serious studies of the Jewish tradition, and my, my biggest holy envy of Judaism is absolutely Shabbat. Like this is something, yeah. th- the world needs more of it. It's imagine like when the world's largest, most effective and influential religion, capitalism, <laughs> is, is telling you work more, harder, buy more, study harder. Like there's one voice from yeah. Sinai for 5,000 years saying, once a week, don't do that. Yeah. It's an uncle. Incredible thing. Like, Judaism and Christianity has many different versions of it. But that unique, particular Jewish articulation of that stop these external journeys and forcefully take on those spiritual disciplines and grow internally is really incredibly and beautiful, Mm -hmm. which we can learn a lot from. Another holy envy is what... uh, what you mentioned, it's so interesting. What you envy of Islam, I envy the opposite direction in the Jewish tradition.
1: Our inability to talk about God? <laughs> no. <laughs>
2: <laughs> your discomfort with God, mm. your wrestling with God, mm. uh, your ability to question. My, one of my mentors at Shalom Hartman, the president of Shalom Hartman, he uh, wrote a book titled, he's a rabbi, orthodox rabbi, Putting God Second. The kind of theological anxiety that I'm going through, I cannot imagine, but only a faithful Jew can say that. Only a faithful Jew can develop a respectful language, even, you know the famous Talmudic, uh, when rabbis were arguing, finally God speaks and takes side of one rabbi, and the other rabbi says, that's not your position to argue. (laughs) (laughs) And they say, they put God into his own place. You know, there is no way no stretch of imagination, even an imam smokes anything that he wants to smoke, we can't go there. We just can't. That's not, that will, that will really fundamentally challenge. But it's so good that you can. So I can look from your shoulder and enjoy that that's possible. That I don't have to be content with always. Uh, I can, I can be uncomfortable with certain divide, that's a holy enemy for me, and Jews do this better than anybody else. You know, I have
1: to, <laughs> I have to say that, that that richness and that diversity is actually part of what has rooted me in a sense of feeling deeply authentic in doing interfaith work, because inevitably you get the challenges of that it's it's fluffy, that it's not real, yeah. that it's um, it's surface level. Um, but if we take seriously that there are seventy faces of Torah, right? If we take seriously that more, minority opinions are just as important to incorporate, if we take seriously machloket shemaim that we're supposed to argue for the sake of heaven, then why are we limiting that to only an internal conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. absolutely, you have something to add to my understanding of Torah, mm-hmm. um, especially because you're, you're not on the inside, right? Mm-hmm. That you have you have a different way of holding a mirror up to me.
0: Now, I want to ask you, you um, something you, you've said publicly, um, Imam Antepli, that you, you realized you had to leave Turkey, as you said, to, and this was a quote, to experience fully God's diversity. So because I'm in journalism, I have to ask, did you really say that? <laughs> um, and, and, and what does that mean? What do you sure. mean, to experience fully God's diversity?
2: I meant one of the ways in which, before the revelation and before the messengers, in Islam, the universe is considered as the main source of God, main source of understanding God. So you will never know God because we are finite human being. God is beyond human imagination. But you can only understand God in God's manifestation in God's creation, that's what I meant. God, God mm-hmm. in many ways through many divine attributes and names manifests God's self I'm so glad I didn't say himself. <laughs> God manifests God's self in the universe, but if you live in Turkey, which is homogeneous society, everybody's Turkish, everybody speaks Turkish, everybody is a Sunni Hanafi Muslim, nominal speaking. I was just suffocated by that level of homogeneity. I have this innate attraction towards difference and anything different. Uh, I I find it intellectually incredibly, I'm curious about finding. Mm. And I I saw this in the tradition, but I wasn't seeing around me that manifestation. I wanted to see the theoretical gods, different manifestations in the universe in action by visiting many different cultural uh, contexts.
0: Okay. So you're both very articulate. You've both at some point Made it work. Felt compelled to get involved, to wander into this space, um, and not just to get involved, but to create some new forms to do it. And and you each had kind of tipping points um, that that really also are flashpoints in our life together writ large, as as I've been reading into you. So so Rabbi Bassin, I think a tipping point for you was two thousand nine. Um, when you were working at the Los Angeles Board of Rabbis. Wanna tell
1: that story? I was an intern for um, the Board of Rabbis, which is the body of um, rabbis associated with the larger Jewish community, uh, cross denominational. And while I was working there, it was um, one of the conflicts that broke out in the Middle East. And outside of the Federation building, there was actually a a protest that was breaking out, a pro-Palestinian protest that that was starting to emerge. And so, all of us who were on the, uh, on the top levels were told to go downstairs and be ready to counter protest. Right? We have to show strength in numbers. And when I went down there, I have this vision seared into my head of this one guy who was just kind of nervously and anxiously pacing back and forth and, and, and kind of mumbling to himself, like we have to get a bigger megaphone, we have to get a bigger megaphone, because we were disorganized, Right? because we weren't as effective as the other side. And and I just remember, like, sighing in frustration of, really, that? That's what's going to solve this, is a bigger megaphone? All that's going to do is add to the problem. And if we don't figure out a way to do something other than scream at each other across the street, then this is never going to solve itself. And so I, I, at that point, recognized the deficiencies of some of the mainstream opportunities at that point of how to do Muslim-Jewish relations. Um, which, by the way, were few and far between. There was such a toxic environment mm-hmm. around this conversation because for years, people had tried. And any time they tried, when there was a conflict in the Middle East, they just backed into their corners. And so by the time I actually started um, Newground, when I was a, a new graduate from Hebrew Union College, when I was, was starting this and seeking out mentors' advice, people who had done interfaith relations, I sat down with a mentor who told me that I was wasting my life and that I was never going to be hired in the mainstream Jewish community again because of the people that I was working with. Mm. And that's terrifying. <laughs> right, this guy is terrifying. Like this guy, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I, I held on to that conversation because it was also a motivator for mm. me. You know, just because that's what had happened. How over old were you? 29. Yeah. Right, That just because that was what the history was, um, I so deeply wanted to prove him wrong that that's what the future had to be, mm-hmm. and there was a particular sense of pride that I took in the next two years, three years, four years, five years as uh, people who would not touch new grounds with a twenty-foot pole. And as new ground, and Los Angeles
0: so was especially heated. Yes, I mean, it, hard, this has hard, been hard everywhere, but it was especially entrenched in Los Angeles. And it was a lot of young Muslims and young Jews right. who created New
1: Ground yeah. to chart a different path. I, I mean, the dysfunction had played out in city politics at the city level. Yeah. Um, and so New Ground was formulated to not reach the top levels of the community leaders and to start one level below where it could be a little bit more under the radar.
0: Which I think is also a new form, right? Yeah. We've been so focused on what's at the top and that's just so broken.
1: Yeah, and yeah. so when you have a, a quieter conversation, it has more potential to be more permeating mm-hmm. into different parts of, of the community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, eventually, not all, but a, a large number of those organizations, they started to see that there was a way to do this where it didn't break apart. They started to see that this conversation had the potential to have staying power if you use the right tools. And they started to come to the table. Mm-hmm. And that for me, is the greatest sense of pride that I have, right? Not, not kind of gathering the people who are already predisposed to it, but getting the people who were suspicious of the conversation to start to be curious about it.
0: Mm-hmm. And so I, we're gonna go into what were some really granular things that you're learning, but I, so for now, I just wanna kind of set the scene in terms of how you both stepped out of the old models. And so I think a tipping point for you um, and I mean, obviously there were many, but, but these were the ones that jumped out at me, was when you organized a trip uh, through Wesleyan University, when you were, you were at Hartford Seminary at that point, I yes, think? Yes, I
2: was a student there, but working uh-huh. as a Muslim chaplain at Wesleyan.
0: Okay. And, and, it was, and it was a trip, I guess you went to Turkey and to Israel. Yes. And it was a trip that, that I guess the Turkey part of it was very successful, and mm. the Israel part was a failure, and that really got you reflecting, it seems like.
2: Absolutely. I think what you are referring to is those moments in life, in the life of your community, where you feel there's a prophetic moment. Prophetic moment meaning both in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and there's a prophetic moment emerges. Uh, usually that really requires very radically questioning, the collective wisdom, which you see it's failing. That they, well, most of the attempts to solve the problem is making things worse. And both in Judaism, Christianity, Islam, when a prophet emerges, none of them come to their community and say, God loves you. You guys are awesome and amazing. You don't have to change anything. <laughs> they come and say, you guys, screw up. God is angry, like you are falling short in your ethical moral commitments. What that trip told me and consecutive conversation with the American Jewish community and American Muslim community, we, have, we are not understanding each other. Mm-hmm and our sources of information vis-a-vis each other. um, The way in which if we cannot develop a common language without triggering social anxieties, existential anxieties in each others, we will never go anywhere. Because it was very clear that we were looking at the same picture, but what appears in the Jewish mirror, what appears in the Muslim screen is completely different reality. Mm -hmm. It was a very clear evidence of that.
0: And you also described how um you know when you were when you've talked about that trip um, you know you did things like um organized debates that had one palestinian and one jew in order to understand both narratives and and that debate model it's kind of like a political model that we've that we've taken into our and it it's, and it didn't do anything differently than what it does in the political sphere which is to start a fight
2: it just made things worse mm-hmm. it's just that kind of partisanship that kind of debate culture throwing facts, United Nations resolutions to one another, that shouting match, it only increased the partisanship which is plaguing us, which is intellectually killing our curiosity, which is killing our willingness to listen to people who may disagree, or our ability to see that there is actually some point. You don't have to agree, you don't have to endorse, but at least to come, that debate model is unfortunately ruining our intellectual, especially moral and spiritual lives.
0: I remember actually, Rabbi Hurt Mannheimer, when we met years ago, when, when, maybe was that five years ago? Ten. ten? Feels to me like it was, yeah, it was, feels like it was to the early post 9 11 years. And you were talking to me about um, all the, the experimenting and kind of probing that, especially Reformed Judaism, was making into relationship and dialogue with the Muslim community and how. You were discovering a kinship, not just that, and even a kinship that was different from the from the more familiar uh, Christian-Jewish dialogue. Um, and, I ju- and I you know, and I, I think as a as a as a journalist. So when I started my work, also in those early years of the century, one thing I was aware of is um, in the newsroom, whenever I, inter- you know, whenever you had someone on from a tradition. The people in the newsroom would say, you know, at the top of the show you have to say what you, we need to tell us. What do they believe? And you know, that is that is a Christian question and you can do that with Christian with Christianity although it doesn't it's very superficial, but you can do that. You can say they believe this. You can't do it with Islam or Judaism. These are traditions of lived piety. And so, like, you know, that's one thing I saw at the very beginning in terms of this kinship, you know, as you say, with this simplistic Abrahamic. Clinical.
2: (laughs) Absolutely right. If anybody tells you Islam is whatever, Christianity says, Judaism believes, shy away from these people. At its best, they are just naive and uninformed, at its worst, they are just lying. No religion of 1.6 billion people, 1,400 years of history says one thing, or believes in one thing, or strongly condemns or endorses one thing. That's just not, and Christianity, Judaism, and Islam is not what our, Christianity is not what New Testament says, only. Judaism is not what Tanakh says, only. Islam is not what Quran and uh, Muhammad said 1,400 years ago. Islam is what Muslims do. Christianity is what Muslims do. You have to see the human manifestation of that text over time, and not just one community, one episode, one time period, but over centuries. What we have been doing, or what we have done, is our religions, our tradition.
1: You know, I would say though, one point of kinship that is actually a point of difficulty in the conversation between Jews and Muslims is that both of us, when we enter into an interfaith conversation, um, we're used to being victims. And when Jews enter into a conversation that's interfaith with Christians, we come and we say, okay, we're victims now, we're ready for the apology, right? We can't do that with the Muslim community because the Muslim community also comes in with a narrative of colonialism and their own narrative of victimization. So we're sitting here and we're waiting for an apology just as the Muslim community is coming to that conversation waiting for an apology, too. So while it's this shared approach, right, and this shared experience of history, it actually creates a flashpoint and a complication when we talk to each other. Hmm.
2: Also, if I may give one more example of such, many Muslims, they see the kinship because of not only theological, ethical, moral similarity. Like, if you suspend all the political chatter and talk about Jewish theology and Muslim theology, attraction is inevitable. Attraction is just incredibly obvious. But also, many Muslims feel affinity because uh, in sometimes naive way, they say, we treated Jews better. Oh, synagogues were open in Istanbul, in Baghdad, in Cairo, etc. And often, they don't realize how imperial, how um, that comes. You are, have a nostalgic relative. The Ottoman
0: Empire? Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. Endless or uh, Golden Age they don't realize by glorifying and maybe exaggerating relatively better Jewish-Muslim relations than the European-Christian-Jewish relationship, uh, they are referring to this hierarchical system where Muslims were here, Christians were here, (laughs) Jews were here. You know, peace is so easy when you win. (laughs) It's like my daughter. If you listen to everything she says and agree, there's peace. Of course it was wonderful, because it was hierarchical. They don't realize how offensive this comes to a 21st century Jew, where they don't wanna make Jewish-Muslim relations great again. Because what they remember, yes, it was relatively better, but it wasn't equal. What they demand in relationship and friendship is relationship of candor, but also a relationship of equality. Not hierarchical ranked system of certain ways communities are higher, certain ways communities are lower. Uh, sometimes that affinity is not as positive. You're absolutely right. It mm-hmm. creates, and it, it's sort of microaggression in such a way that builds up these unseen walls between our communities.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that that, that you're learning. Um, and and I believe, Rabbi Bassan, you've actually, uh, in, in one of your, it feel like you've done so much at such a young age. But At some point, where were you with the... Um, U.S. Muslim-Jewish Relations at the Center for, you were at the Center for Muslim-Jewish Engagement, um, which is um, at USC, directed by Rabbi Reuven F- Firestone, and you were part of a project that was actually mapping, um, right, you were mapping the new landscape of what yeah, we're not gonna like call. like it was forever ago. Okay, and we're point. not gonna call it interfaith <laughs> relationship, whatever uh-huh. that is, uh, uh-huh. that kinship relationship, new conversation. Um, just, just kind of tell us about, and I guess as you say, it feels like forever ago, and and the landscape has continued to change. And
1: yeah, the landscape grow. has evolved tremendously. That was that was probably two thousand eight, two thousand nine, maybe um, that I did that, and it feels like a world of difference. Mm-hmm. I think when I was when I was doing that report, part of it was a hunger for me of looking for people who are like-minded and doing this work, and and trying not to feel. So alone, right? What would it look like for us to feel more networked and to feel like there were more energy and power rather than these isolated things that were yeah. happening sporadically? Um, you know, and and since then, the, the network has gotten a lot more sophisticated, and and there is a sense of you know, I I knew about Imam Antepley well before I ever met him, and and vice versa. There's this sense of. We know who the players are. We know where this good work is being done. And we're all relying a lot on a lot of the same tools to make it happen. Yeah.
2: As the fuller side of the glass is quite impressive, but also, I think since 2008 and 9, the emptier side of the glass is also very significant. Yeah. Um, landscape change for better, also for worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Muslim anti-Semitism is worse than what it was. And the Jewish Islamophobia, the anti-Muslim bigotry in the Jewish community is a lot worse, a lot sharper.
1: And, and I mm. just wanna jump in here because you've, you have been so clear about being vocal of the anti-Semitism in the Muslim community and it's appropriate and right and fair for me to say that Islamophobia really is a significant problem in the Jewish community as well. And um, <clears throat> it's not a truth that we like to face but it's one that um, is deeply ingrained in our understanding of self and particularly manifests with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict of our prism through which we view all Muslims Mm -hmm. and the fear that we have towards even our Muslim neighbors in the United States. Um, This internalized uh, Islamophobia from the larger culture that has this particularly Jewish flavor that we add to it from our own experience.
2: Thank you, Sarah. Uh, Not but, and my dismay and disgust, deep disgust for Muslim anti-Semitism is not a demand for reciprocal gesture, quite honestly. Mm -hmm. I I despise Muslim anti-Semitism because I know what hate does, an individual to a community. When hate becomes unchallenged, if it goes freely and often masked under certain political arguments, it erodes the ethics and morals of the community. If the allow Muslim anti-Semitism go louder and stronger than what it is now, it's going to destroy American Islam. I have all the selfish interest, in all honesty, uh, to save the soul of uh, American Muslim communities to make sure, in its earlier stages, we are gonna quarantine that cancer and wipe it out. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, well, so I'm gonna, guess I'm, and, I, and you probably can't answer this question, and I'm not sure how much of a Try difference. Us. I'll try you, and it's the kind of question I ask, and I'm not, uh, I'm not sure how much difference it makes, but I, I I guess the the question I want to ask about this phenomenon that you're actually both seeing is there, are these, is this fear and this um, hate, hate, um, is it actually, you know, is it spreading? You know, is it, is it truly more and more people? And or is it that the voice is, that, you know, that these voices are louder and more trusted and um, or, or have, have seized some authority that wasn't there before? Maybe it's all of those things. I, I'm always curious about this. I,
1: I don't think it's more widespread. I do think it's deeper. I think that the people who the were, places
0: where it might have been before where it already had really... a hold,
1: it now has a stranglehold. Okay, um, but you know, I, I've I've witnessed even in in my own community since coming to to Temple Emmanuel, some really transformed perspectives through actual lived contact with Muslims. Mm-hmm. Right, we had this experience at the beginning of the year where um there were th- all those bomb threats that were coming into jewish institutions and there was a palpable fear mm-hmm. right and vast majority of us were pretty sure that it was going to be a muslim who eventually was going to be revealed to be the person behind it of course at the end of the day it wasn't it was it was somebody who was jewish but um, in that moment that's when my new ground network got activated and one of our alumni came to, um, brought a group of Muslims to seven different synagogues on seven different Shabbatot as a statement of solidarity. And when she showed up, I mean, it it touched my heart, right, the the depth of relationship and what those years of building that relationship actually looks like and that moment it felt like it paid off in a kind of way. Mm. Um, But the way that it touched my community It just tore down those walls and tore down those barriers. So I don't think that it's wider. I think it's louder, and I think that that hate is deeper. But I don't think it's wider.
2: Mm -hmm. I I have a slightly different take. I think all the causes, causations of this cancer and tumor is absolutely right. But I think why it's so more visible and hurting us more is our immune system is deteriorating. Uh, Our ability to resist and detect hate is the wider community is losing its immune system. That's why I'm saying cancer. What cancer does is it's not getting any stronger, but it makes you weaker that even a small dose of it can destroy you. I see this in the Islamophobia. Immediately after uh, 9-11, early 2002, few months after the shock of 9-11, when Americans are asked, is Islam a kosher religion? And are American Muslims equal American citizens? Like many questions these opinion polls are asking, and the number of Americans who said no to that question, Islam is not an acceptable American religion, and American Muslims are not acceptable equal citizens, it was only 21%. Today it's 57%. 57%. More than one in every two Americans somehow feel uncomfortable with this religion. They believe in religious liberty. They believe every American should practice their religion Comfortably as they feel it, but they don't feel comfortable sitting next to a Muslim on a plane. They don't feel comfortable having a mosque in their neighborhood. They don't feel comfortable having a fake Muslim president. Uh, After eight years of Obama, (laughs) the guy ate eight years of bacon and went to church regularly. At the end of his eighth term, 29% of Americans believe that he is a Muslim and that's a bad thing. And if you take that that 29% to certain states, certain parties, Certain faith communities, it's 80, 90%. Meaning, yes, it's not larger. The hate, but it's it's destroying more. Its ability to destroy is more because our immune system. Many people in 2002 who would watch Fox TV for three minutes and would say, ouch, you can't say that. They don't say that anymore. Mm -hmm. Many people, they just numb uh, gradually themselves that, yeah. I mean, not all Muslims are terrorists but something is wrong with these people.
1: Hashtag not all Muslims.
0: <laughs> um, you know, I, I think Imam Antepli, there's something, the way you, and I and I, I think part of what we get into into with, with um, interfaith experiences is that representing a whole tradition, right? So I don't want to say the way you represent Islam, <laughs> but you're the position. I do that all the time. The perspective, <laughs> you do. The perspective and the position you take is, I would say not necessarily unique, but not the publicized way to present um, publicly as Muslim. And so, what I now I'm going to just simplify that is to say, you know, you you say very clearly that it's not true to say that ISIS people in ISIS are not Muslims, and that their ideology has no connection to Islam. And you also say things like this. Um, that the reason religion has become, part one of the reasons religion has become such a divisive force in the world is that the crazies and nut jobs of our faith communities (laughs) hijack the faith as they zealously promote the narrow, exclusive, and even violent interpretations of our faith traditions. So again, there's one of those both ands.
2: Sure, sure. I wholeheartedly, I feel very passionate about this. Solution to the ills and the evils of our communities are not disowning them. It is so easy and cheap and quick to say, ISIS is not Muslim, Hezbollah is not Muslim, Hamas is not Muslim. You can't say that. As much as they turn my stomach upside down, as much as I am disgusted what they represent, I cannot disown it. I cannot say, Osama bin Laden is not Muslim. As you can't say, whatever. I think disowning <laughs> and, and I cannot tell you One of the biggest pastoral crises related to this is, unfortunately, Muslim crazies are so publicized, unfortunately, many Muslim kids are internalizing this. Like, I cannot cannot tell how many times I broke into tears at home with my kids or uh, my students at Duke University. Whenever they see a crazy Jew or violent Christian, it's amazing, they come and say something like, we don't own all the crazies in the world like almost misery-like company, it makes you feel that uh, as a Muslim somehow we we have a monopoly in craziness. We have a monopoly in religious violence, which is quite horrible. Solution is not to divorce ourselves from our moral responsibility. We have to own this uh, cancer and we have to defeat it in its theological, ideological ground, and we have to defeat it in its uh, social, political, and cultural ground distancing yourself, this has nothing to do with Islam is unfortunately making things worse. Making things worse also for the non-Muslims. Those well-meaning Muslims, whenever they say no, it has nothing to do with Islam, they don't realize how much they look like an ostrich hiding his head on the, on the sand, unfortunately. But at the same time, there is a moral crisis that in all faith tradition, the crazier you are, the more publicity you get.
0: Oh, the that, crazy. That's just true of, that's the way, yes. well, that's also the way journalism works these days, right? I mean, it's not, it's, it's also I don't true of politicians. What, and,
2: <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, and what religion
0: makes, is caught in this. In absolutely. This, in if this I this hit
2: Sarah, it will be in New York Times. <laughs> but this is not going to make front page yeah. New York but Times. But
1: it's also depicted in some, in some ways as the more authentic Version yes. of what religion is too, mm-hmm. and that's that's where I think all of our responsibility comes in, in saying like that is not the only thing that religion is, and and I completely agree with you, right? The Jewish approach to dealing with our crazies is to dismiss it as a statistical anomaly, right? Or to say that that's not my type of Judaism. We may not say they're not a Jew. We're really big on the peoplehood concept, but we'll say that's not my type. Of, of Judaism, which does that same distancing. And, and I think that we actually have to have that internal battle for the soul of our religion to try to move that center back to a place mm-hmm. where it embraces the love over the violence, but both are pieces mm-hmm. that, that we have to wrestle with.
2: Also, I think it's a very common intellectual disease that the authenticity is only seen as externality. Mm-hmm. Authenticity or traditionalism, orthodoxy, piety, is not your devotional rigorous prayer life, not how many books you read, how many degrees that you have earned. The way you look, I will never forget one of my students, I was going to do his wedding, said, can you not trim your beard for three weeks? Because it's not long enough. It's just, uh, okay. just as if, as if the, the, the authenticity and piety is in the length of my beard. I don't have to bust my brain to read more books and get more knowledge, all I need to do is not to shave and look, look a little bit like as if I just rolled out of my bed. And that's unfortunately a common human intellectual disease. Mm-hmm. Like What makes traditionally somebody dressing up like a Polish aristocrat thinking Moses walked in the desert like that, what makes him more authentic than somebody who's, uh, who's living internal Jewish ethics and morality in the most devotional way possible? Mm.
1: It goes along with how often I get told that I don't look like a rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so look closer to the ground. Um, yeah, one of one of the things Rabbi Bassin that you've talked about is, um, you know, there's this. There has been this habit in this sphere of diving right into the conflict diving right into the conflict or avoiding the conflict entirely. And both of those fail. They just, they fail. But there are some some simple things that that you've both been involved in, just different framings and starting points and exercises to walk people into a different space, Muslims and Jews. Um, So one of the things I noticed, and I I just want to talk about this a little bit. You were telling the story about in New Grounds Fellowship Program, um, and I know New Ground again, which was started by young people um, on both sides, uh, has just really been so innovative in creating a different kind of relationship. Um, you talk about uh, the the one of the exercises of um, asking everyone to listen to a series of statements. So, so the Jews are on one side, the Muslims are on the other, and you start with some statements. So, just just describe kind of what happens and what that affects like
1: yeah so um you know there there are a lot of different versions of this game when one of them is me and all my neighbors right so me and all my neighbors are wearing blue jeans whoever's wearing blue jeans steps into the circle and uh, sees who else is wearing blue jeans right then you gradually kind of raise the stakes of of that game and get more and more deep and more and more personal mm-hmm. right me and all my neighbors have Lost someone to religious violence. Me and all my neighbors have experienced uh, hate crime, right? And without ever saying a word, just by seeing those connections and how they don't always break down across faith lines. So in the that, way that you statement think. is true of you.
0: You walk you into the center. You step into the circle, and so immediately the
1: one group on one
0: side and the other group on the other side. It breaks down. Standing together based on experiences they share, which are quite deep.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so it redraws those lines. And you don't only have those definitions of, okay, I'm walking into this room as a Jew, and I'm walking into this room as a Muslim. Maybe it's, I'm walking into this room as a woman who's experienced sexual harassment in my religious community. Mm -hmm. Or I'm walking into this room as somebody with a disability who's felt rejected in some way by my community. And when you redraw those lines, it creates that connection in a totally different way.
2: In that regard, what I am trying to do with Shalom Hartman program Yes,
1: is... and I wanted to, that's, that's So was, Let's just say a little bit.
0: So after sure. that Wesleyan experience, when you got really serious about how, how to do this differently, yes. you ended up leading to this friendship with Yossi Klein Halevi um, and, and creating something very new at the Shalom Hartman Institute. Mm-hmm.
2: I wasn't able to convince Yosikola and Halevi immediately. Right. He's a very difficult date. It took ten years. (laughs) It took ten years uh, of his skepticism. uh, And I shopped around. You know what I identified is we Muslims, we don't have to agree anything. But we have to understand how Jews understand themselves. It's like I always felt Jews are looking to Chicago map, Muslims are looking into Boston map, thinking that they are actually looking into the same map, they are arguing. Turn right, turn left. It's just not the same map. Mm-hmm. We don't, without mm-hmm. necessarily obliged to agree on anything, can I understand where you're coming from? This is not a dialogue. The MLI program at Shalom Hartman, and Shalom Hartman does this. And it's beautifully. A, a
0: Muslim leadership initiative. Muslim leadership yeah. initiative.
2: And it's our initiative. We knocked their door. A group of Muslim Americans right. said, Can you, without litmus tests, without Googling our names and what we said about Israel, can you? without blaming us, I talk to X, X talk to Y, Y talk to care, that's why you can't talk to anybody, which unfortunately Jewish-Muslim relations is Mm -hmm. in this phase in America. Those litmus tests are suffocating us. Here is an organization so confident. Mm -hmm. You want to come to an Israeli Zionist organization and want to listen to my Torah? I don't care who you are. I don't care if you disagree. It's better that you disagree with me, that you come and learn. We wanted to test to see if a little bit of education Little bit of education can basically take us from this uh, vicious cycle. And one of my moment in that uh, exercise (laughs) was one of the the participants said, Abdullah, I hate you. I hate you. I said, why? Because I was in a very comfortable spot for years telling myself, I am not an anti-Semite. I'm not a hater. I'm an anti-Zionist. I'm an anti-Israeli. Now when I understand how Jews define these terms. When I look at the Jewish map, Jewish mirror, how they realize, I just realize not only I am sufficiently anti-Semitic, but I'm masking my anti-Semitism beyond, behind these labels that doesn't mean anything for the Jewish community. Mm-hmm. It's working. But sometimes what we realize, it's not enough even the education. Even if you are so sophisticated communicator, the problems that dividing us, wounding our community is so strong. The firewalls of skepticism is so thick that even the best schmoozer cannot go through it. Like you have to, in addition to education, one way of learning. So MLI is not a dialogue. It's not we go there, they teach us what Jews believe, and we teach them what Muslims believe. One way of education, I encourage all of you, not through the lenses of 9-11 in Israeli-Palestinian conflict, can I try to understand how Muslims see themselves? How Muslims talk about these issues? How do they define themselves? MLI program is, Judaism as religion, Jews as people, Zionism as a form of nationalism, and Israel as a secular nation state, as Jews understand it. There's an incredible power if we can able to listen to people where they are coming from. Our political disagreements remain there, but once it, it what this does, what that education does, it creates a space in your mind. It creates a space in your heart about this individual that you politically disagree. But your conversations and your attitudes will be different to them. And you have to find out a way what good will act. What good will act will bring these unseen walls of skepticism. And it's not easy. I will never forget. I went to a synagogue in my area. I am doing this Quran Torah study stuff with them. That's my ninth time in that synagogue in the last nine months, which means my attendance is better than the rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Who goes to synagogue nine times a year? Um, like I will, I will never, I will never forget. Uh, this gentleman stood up, and his first question is: This is the ninth time he's seeing me. He's in my group. Where are the moderate Muslims? What are they? Blah blah blah. I said, like, oh my goodness, Jews have to learn how to take yes as an answer, and like we have to somehow we have to involve in goodwill acts that. Uh, our efforts to engage, Mm -hmm. our educational tools that we are bringing to heal our wounded and polarized communities is going to be effective. Unfortunately, we are losing so much of that energy into sheer skepticism, intellectual laziness.
0: And I I think that that image of opening up a new space is really important. And in fact, it's a a new form. It's a very different approach from we're going to have a debate or even we're going to inform each other, and then and then find common ground or agree. And I think we all you you've both spoke about. I've thought about this so much of How you know sometimes it, you know when we've celebrated diversity or leaped to common ground, everything has been so superficial. Um, and you know there's a there was an interesting. Um, this was an interview with you and Yossi Klein-Halevi. And he says, this is exactly what drew me to trust Abdullah in this project. I told him, you know, I am not a dove. I am not a leftist. My positions are very mainstream, skeptical Israel. And you said back, and I'm not interested in marginal Jews who will agree with everything Muslims believe about Israel. And, and Rabbi Bassin, you've also talked a lot about this, that. That you know, coming out of New Ground,
1: all the work you've done, what we've learned,
0: agreement is not the point here. Right. And I
1: I think that one of our greatest communal flaws is that we often try to find the good Muslim or the good Jew who represents an opinion that is in line with our own community, and then lament why can't every other Muslim be like that good Muslim that I saw speak in front of this massive Jewish crowd, right? And the Muslim community does the same thing. Why can't every other Jew be like this good Jew who is uh, pro-BDS and rejects the Zionist narrative? And that's not a helpful disposition because it's not going to solve the problem. I think, you know, the through thread for my rabbinate that has carried me from New Ground to the work that I do at Temple Emanuel is that I see my rabbinic mission as building our collective muscle to have more difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. Because I think we've lost that. Right. And and it's not only a muscle that we fail to exercise in the Jewish community, it's a bigger tear in our civic fabric in yeah. general. Yeah. And I want to have more and model more conversations of people who are in relationship, who care about each other and who are willing to publicly disagree and then hug each other at the end of that conversation because the relationship can withstand that disagreement.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, Frances Kisling, who um, has been a real model for me, I mean, she's, she came out of the abortion debate. As you say, this is a larger cultural right. dynamic. Um, and um, she was head of Catholics for Choice. Um, and then after she retired from that, kind of set out to figure out what it would mean to be in relationship with her political opposites, understanding that they might never agree. But one thing she said is this... Um, this push that we have to agreement works against our understanding. When there's really deep, really deep disagreement to start with, it works against our understanding each other, you know, which gets back to your point, beginning with understanding. But that's, it's very countercultural to speak that way. In this culture, it yeah. sounds like like you, it's not a serious enterprise if you're not about agreement. I
1: don't know, I, I Because wondered. zealotry is a value more than compromise. Right, or, or, or idealism is more of a value than um, the ability to be uncomfortable. But I do think, especially in this past year, all of these calls that we're hearing for a more civil conversation, that the pendulum is starting to swing the other way, and we're at least acknowledging the need for it, even if we're still feeling around culturally in the dark for what those skills actually look like.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Also, there's a conflation of political disagreement with moral, moral disagreement. And I think many communities are not able to um, register their political disagreement but build an overarching moral connection with one another. Yossi is like my brother. Um, There's hardly anybody who's closer to me like him. But watch us when we talk about Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Watch especially us when we talk about Iran. I feel he's possessed with Iran. Uh, I feel uh, he's exaggerating that problem. But do I ever doubt his integrity? Do I ever doubt his moral? red lines, do I ever doubt his moral imagination? And in that, I think many people think political disagreement translates itself as moral arguments. That's, that, that's what needs education. We have to provide into Jewish Muslim market new educational products, which will invest in that overarching moral questions and moral red lines.
0: Mm-hmm. Although, I think that language of moral imagination kind of reviving that, nurturing that muscle, as you've
1: said, yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it's. Um, I think I think we have abandoned the language of of morality, and and I want us to have more moral courage, hmm. and, um, not to shy away from things that are controversial, and to embrace those things that are going to get us in trouble. You know, one of the things I'm really lucky at with my with my synagogue is that I put forth this plan for difficult conversations that I wanted our community to engage in. And I put out the line that the only people I don't want in this space are people who are going to physically threaten our security. But beyond that, I think with that we want to welcome as diverse voices as possible into this space. And and it's it's been hard and some people have been challenged by it, but ultimately the leadership has really embraced that because they see the need for it.
2: Moral conversations are difficult because every moral conversation is a Yom Kippur service. You have to do this. Yeah. You have to face the ugliness in, in yourself and in your community. Most of the moral conversation is this, uh, okay. hitting the chest of the other side, what moral failure that you see. Yeah. But the real moral conversations is to put an honest mirror, put yourself into a CT scan, CAT scan and see what the report is, what is in you, in your community, how much moral energy and commitment and drive is uh, behind what you do, and how much of this shallow shallow politics. That's why it's very difficult, but we should absolutely shake the moral imagination of our communities. We have to improve the level of self-critical moral awakening, moral courage in our communities.
0: I think, uh, you know, everybody in this room could kind of make a list, short list of the really hard edges, the intractable conflicts that around which it's almost impossible to have conversation. Um, and I don't want to publicize those anymore because they get all the publicity. But I am curious, and so so if we're talking, this is not about agreement, it's not about everybody becoming like each other. Um, are there examples of, um, through these experiences you've had, I don't know, a subject or an issue or something that felt impossible to talk about, that again, perhaps was not transformed in the sense that everybody in the room now believed exactly the same thing, but there was a new way to navigate, to live that question together.
2: One of the big ones is um, my communities, by and large, I don't want to generalize, but overwhelming majority, I would argue, our understanding of Zionism and Israel uh, effectively as a reality born out of Auschwitz. And uh, they might have heard here and there, but whatever. But I saw in this MLI education how so quickly, once they hear that, they don't have to agree that there is a Zionism and Israel born out of Sinai. There is a pre-Holocaust biblical religious imagination to a homeland. And there is a daily Jewish prayer to Zion. Um, again, their moral critique of Zionism and certain uh, human rights violations of the state of Israel is still there. But to see that there's a whole different story, there's a whole different narrative, there's a whole different connection, I saw this, incre- it makes an incredible inroad. It makes an, it creates a space where you can do a lot of stuff with existing political disagreements.
0: There's actually, um, I was reading something that someone who took part in one of the, the, the Muslim Leadership Initiative at Hartman Institute, um, Rabia Chaudhry, mm-hmm. a fellow of the Truman National Security Project, New America Foundation. She, after being part of the program, precisely on that subject, she wrote a, a Time Magazine opinion piece, and the headline was yes. what, a, what a Muslim American Learned from Zionists. And she she spoke of herself as seeing Hartman Institute as unapologetically Zionist, and she'd been committed to the Palestinian cause has been is committed to throughout her life. Um, that she'd always seen Zionism as an opportunistic land grab in the wake of the Holocaust from the people from people who had nothing to do with the tragedy. She said, "I've always been proudly anti-Zionist, but." She said what she learned, how important it was, to your point, learning in the Hartman program was that Zionism means something very different for Jews, the Jewish people's longing of thousands of years for homeland, a return from exile, a sanctuary from being a hated minority in the diaspora. on a chance for redemption, and she said she simply hadn't known this. And of course, you—you you know I think she said, I probably should have, but that's not the world we live in
1: of shoulds. <laughs> you know, I yeah. think in the Jewish community, the yeah. conversation that gets uh, fuller and more nuanced for us is around boycott, divestment, and sanctions. Um, that when you learn from the Muslim community and, and learn what's motivating that participation, right, I think a lot of us see it as a blanketly anti-Semitic movement. And while it's clear that there are problematic elements to it, um, my sense from the Muslim community is that the vast majority of the people who participate see this as an expression of nonviolent engagement and nonviolent action for a more just society. And, um, you know, if not nonviolent, then what type of action do we do that is proactive, that puts pressure? And I don't align with the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. It's not some place where I feel comfortable, um, but it is something that I am willing to speak to the Jewish community with more nuance about it, um, and that the people who go through the new ground process often come out with a much more nuanced perspective of what BDS actually is and represents. Mm-hmm.
2: Can I add a quick one to BDS conversation? And for those Jews, rather naively think BDS is all Muslim enterprise. Right. It's a monolithic Muslim push. And as if all Muslims are, I totally agree with you. I don't think BDS is categorically anti-Semitic. There are anti-Semitic elements in it. There are anti-Semitic individuals in it. But to categorically say anti-Semitic is, to me, irresponsible. And it's sort of adding insult to the injury of people who see it as non-violent resistance. But I also saw. Uh, when you tell them the Jewish involvement in BDS, like one third of it is that actually ideological zeal, financial resource are coming from a Jewish community uh, that, that needs to sort of, I saw this making people pause and say, oh, I never thought it as a mm. semi, in my, on my campus, 70% of BDS is Jewish students. Their faculty advisor is an Israeli citizen, mm. Israeli, Jewish, Israeli, mm. Israeli. It's not as black and white as we think.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, as part of the Civil Conversations Project, I'm with Imam Abdullah Antepli and Rabbi Sarah Bassin. We're at the Union for Reform Judaism's General Assembly in Boston. So um, so this General Assembly has had different topics for every day, and the topic for today is faith. And um, with a couple of questions, um, Associated with that, how can our communities remain relevant, vibrant, and meaningful? How do we inspire people to see Judaism as a primary tool in their search for meaning, wisdom, and community? And I think a 21st century question, actually for all of our traditions, given the, given, Mm. Uh, that tr- problematic term of interfaith relationship
2: as it's evolving. I call it cross-faith engagement.
0: Cross-faith engagement, a little bit better. <laughs> Still not thrilling. Still technical. <laughs> yeah. Um, is And I want to ask each of you this question in a different way. So Rabbi Bassin, how is Jewish-Muslim relationship a matter of Jewish theology and practice in the 21st century?
1: My core understanding of God um, comes through the lens of the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, where our greatest access to God is not actually through scripture or through the inherited tradition. That's a record of people grappling with God. But our greatest access to God comes through the face of the other, and that it's the face of the other that holds a mirror up to ourselves. It's the face of the other that actually gives us commandment. And that's what Muslim-Jewish relations is for me. It's, it's an encounter with God um, in a very deep and profound way. And it goes back to those core questions of, of choosing to be transformed by those encounters with somebody who's different, and, and having that uh, cause me to look at myself differently, to see what's deficient about my faith, or to see what I should take pride in. In, in my own faith. I, you know, from, from the time that I was a kid and these Jewish Catholic encounters uh, were a sense of a of, of religious asset to me. Hmm. I was always deeply troubled, but when I got to college, those things were frowned upon, that, that that kind of background actually lessened my Jewish authenticity and it was so counterintuitive to what I understood myself. And my reaction was to dig my heels in and carve a place out for myself in the Jewish community to say, not only are you wrong, but I am going to carve this space out for me and for people like me who get our religious meaning perhaps in a different way than you do. And, And I think that that impulse has really stuck with me. And the people who go through Newground as young professionals, they walk out with such a deeper sense of Jewish self such a deeper sense of Jewish self than they've gotten for years and in walking into a synagogue on Yom Kippur because they're forced to ask themselves questions that they're not forced to when they're standing in front of somebody who's exactly like them. Mm.
2: Mm. I loved your description of Islam as a living reality. Mm. Our understanding of theology is not what we believe or what we do once a week or twice a week. It's, it really, being a good Muslim, like being a good Jew, informs your food, your marriage, your future, your business, like the way you go to bathroom, what you do after the bathroom, it's sort of very expensive way of understanding theology. And in that, I would argue overwhelming majority of the Muslim parents, what keeps them up at the night is not our troubling, deeply troubling president or rising anti-Muslim bigotry. Most Muslims are up in the night saying, will my children be Muslim? Will God be part of their life? Will my grandchildren, have a sense of God's presence in their life? Will they marry and fall in love with a fellow Muslim? Will they eat halal food? Will uh, will they have Imams who can speak proper English uh, without making grammar uh, suicides? Uh, So (laughs) in that living theology, there is no community other than the Jewish community who can be a companion to us Hmm. in defining American Islam, in Hmm. defining American Muslim theology. The day after the Pew result came about the American Jewish community, I will never wait, forget. Wait,
0: which Pew
1: result was
2: that? About American Jewish community, uh, there was a very extensive Pew result about three years ago. Mm-hmm.
1: The one that caused all the panic in the yes, Jewish yes, community—that yes, yes, one. Yes. So, <laughs> okay,
0: remind
2: me because they're putting those reports out all the time. Well, uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about it.
1: Uh, it, it just, it reflected um, you know, fears of assimilation and lack of uh, denominational affiliation and people becoming the nuns, the religious
2: nuns. Yeah, um, N-O-N-E-S. 70% interfaith yeah. marriage and, right. Un, right, uh, right. and okay. et cetera. Okay. Yeah. The day after, that panic was not limited to the Jewish community. There are nine voice messages at my office at Duke University. Muslims around the country is calling and basically saying, Imam Abdullah, you seem to know something about these people. Look <laughs> like how problematic. Tell us how we are not going to end up where they are. Mm-hmm. Tell us, yeah, this is, uh, uh, this is a real anxiety. Every August when I welcome a new freshman class to Duke University, the, the Muslim parents are telling me three things. Please make sure he and she will go to Jummah on Friday. Please make sure he and she will date with a Muslim. Please make sure they will go to medical school. <laughs> <laughs> what is more Jewish than that? Like, what? Is... <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> and in, the, in that, mm-hmm. I think, theology is not a head game. It's not an abstract thing that you think and figure out. Theology, as Jews and Muslims, we understand we do theology. Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. believe in theology. So, one,
1: one comment, yeah. though, I want to sure. make a, an addition to this. I, I don't think that the... I push back against the um, apoca- apocalyptic feeling that people have from that from that Pew study, because what I think it reflects is that our institutions mm-hmm. might be struggling, mm-hmm. but that doesn't necessarily reflect the spiritual or religious richness that individuals are having. And you know, I gave a talk yesterday about how millennials and millennial Jews in particular have deeply rich Jewish journeys and experiences, they're just happening outside of our institutions in a way mm. that we can't necessarily capture. And I wouldn't be surprised if that same thing is happening within the American Muslim community we too. We absolutely see that in, in our media space.
0: I, I, I think not only is there, um, is there a, a, a spiritual search that's very profound and active, especially in that generation of non and but also a real theological curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to ask you, you this question also. I mean, how is Jewish Muslim relationship a matter of is, of and for Islamic theology and practice in the 21st century?
2: <clears throat> I think the Jewish experience in the United States, how Jews evolved and admirably, like I am not saying this because I read the protocols of Elders of Zion. I am saying this with genuine envy and admiration how Jewish community transformed itself from a despised, hated minority of 1920s into somewhat beloved and and respectful uh, minority of 2017. So in that American Muslim community has a lot to learn. In that American Muslim community, in shaping American Islam, what you see as American Muslim community is Pretty much where we are is where you guys were 70, 80 years ago. Many Jews coming from Eastern Europe, and the Holocaust is about to happen, and the Jewish institutions are being built. That's where we are now. And in that, we have a lot to learn from your successes and failures. And we have to earn that respect that you will be a good mentors to us. And in teaching us your successes and failures, this will be a good soul search for you. There is an incredible rich conversation. What you see is the negotiation of American Muslim experience as a religious cultural identity, in that we are gonna be shading our immigrant background more and more in the younger generation, but we need some mentors. We need some uh, people who can can be teachers to us. Catholic community can be, Mormon community can be as well, but there is no community other than the Jewish community.
1: One thing to add about, uh, you know, you look to us for the past, and I think that it's going to flip, that the American Jews are going to look to the American Muslim community in the future um, because of the demographics and where uh, trends are headed. Um, I've been arguing for the last five, ten years that it's deeply in the American Jewish self-interest to start to build the relationships with the American Muslim community now to, in some ways, serve that mentoring role to, to share whatever secrets we've used from the past... Century some of them will still work some of them are going to need to be updated But if we don't build this relationship with you now I think we're in danger of really being left behind as the Muslim community in America becomes more organized and becomes more powerful And in a lot of ways the American Jewish community has in some ways relied on Drowning out with our power the voices of the American Muslim community Mm -hmm. and that's no longer going to be a strategy that works for us and uh, so we're gonna true. be better served by our partnership. And it's
2: war to American Jews and Muslims if we continue to play this zero-sum proxy war. Right. And if we, war to us when it is possible, where it is possible with the opportunities that American civic society and culture is providing us, if we cannot produce a language other than talking points to each other and engage in this mutually enriching dialogues and conversations. Mm-hmm.
0: I just realized that we're Drawing to a close, and I oh, am in radio, so we, I just warmed will, up. we will finish <laughs> it. <laughs> um, I, I feel like we could keep going for another hour. Um, so, you know, we've been talking about what it means to be Jewish and Muslim and in relationship, and we're all also inhabiting this reality of being alive in the year 2017, which is a moment of tumult globally. Um, and rabbi Bassin, i i in your your uh, Rosh Hashanah sermon this year you seem to be drawn to those. Um, I need to
1: come to your synagogue on Rosh Hashanah next year i, I can get you a free ticket okay. All right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay um you were talking about the Kabbalistic interpretation, the creation story um, uh is as, as a Jewish lens to Martin Luther King's prophetic statement that darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Um, and I'd love for you to, and, and you, also, you also told a story about um, what happened in your temple in Los Angeles um, the same day of the Charlottesville, the terrible events in Charlottesville of white supremacists and, and that that was light. Mm-hmm. Shining in the darkness. Um, so I I, I, like, I wonder if you would just offer that up and then I'd, I'd like to hear kind of um, of a text or a metaphor of, of Islam that sure. is
1: with you in this moment writ large, so yeah.
0: <clears throat>
1: One of the feelings that I needed to speak to as a rabbi in 2017 was uh, this feeling of, of spiritual exhaustion um, that people were having at, at the kind of darkness and hate and anger that was building, and you know I, I know that we need to be recharged. So the story that I referenced was the fact that on the same day um, that that uh, white supremacist march happened, um, a group of our congregants, about 20 of our congregants, who we formed this partnership with a organization called TIA that serves refugees resettling in Southern California. Um, a group of us went down to Orange County to help them prepare with a back-to-school day for about 300 refugee kids, many of whom were going to be returning to school for the first time since leaving their war-torn countries. And if you want a better metaphor of what lights driving out darkness looks like, you couldn't think of one. Then, you know, this, this group that was yelling, get out, get out, we don't want you in our country, here we were, saying welcome. We are glad to have you as our neighbors. And that's what it looks like to drive out the darkness with the light. That's what it looks like for that, for that holy light that gets spread into the world and to, to collect those pieces and those shards of that holy light and to hold it up. But we can't let that spiritual exhaustion win and we can't drive out the hate with hate. Right? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was so right with that 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 is never a sentiment that's going to win. So, whatever those small battles are that we have to fight, that are battles that are rooted in love, that's what's going to marginalize the hates, not yelling back. A piece of tra-
2: <laughs> a piece of tradition that holds me up and it really informs my desire to reach and build strong relationships with American Jewish communities is a Turkish Haredi joke. <laughs> A Turkish Haredi Sufi walk in midnight, and he sees another Turkish Haredi desperately looking something. And he says, like, what's going on? I left my car keys here. I can't find it. And then he goes on helping him. They look everywhere. And at some point, the gentleman who's trying to help him says, like, are you sure you left your key here? He said, no. I don't think I, I dropped it here. He said, why are you looking here then? Why are you looking for here? He said, this is the only place that where there is light. <laughs> this is the only place the light is on. So for many, many questions for people of faith that we are facing as a result of modernity, whether it's empowering women and defeating patriarchy, whether it's empowering and creating a respectful space in LGBTQ communities, whether uh, defeating the common rising voices of hate and exclusion. Some of those answers are already in the tradition. Some of the answers are in places where tradition is shedding light upon, but many of those answers are in those dark places where the work, intellectual work, theological work, spiritual work is not being done. And it's very difficult for one tradition to go to those dark places alone. We can can shape a different kind of theology, walk into those dark places holding each other's hands together and glorify God's names in a very unique and different way together, inshallah. Thank you.
0: You, Rabbi Besson,
1: you, you wanted to say something else, so I wanna let you say that. And. Um, well, the one piece of Torah that I really wanna share, which is, is a more modern piece of Torah, comes from Dr. Rabbi Rachel Adler, who gave me the language of being in the borderlands. Um, she wrote an article uh, titled To Live Outside the Law, You Must Be Honest, and it was a reflection of how we come across, uh, upon those borders in our community. And when do we choose to uphold them? And when do we choose to push against them? When do we choose to cross over? And when do we choose just to try to shove them down? And that's always been the most important visual for me in my life and in my rabbinate. And, you know, Muslim-Jewish relations is part of walking along that borderland. And there are some times when I've gotta jump over and see what happens when I'm alone on the other side, and there's some times where I have to gently push and sometimes where I really want to uphold that boundary, but that visual has always been tremendously helpful for a sense of rooting myself in a deep authenticity of why this work really matters.
0: Thank you both for a beautiful and important conversation. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank
1: you.